Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello, I am Savannah Roundtree, and this is Bridging Chicago. Sitting here today with me, we have another one of our partners, Bob, uh, Bob Tepper. Thank you for sitting with us today, Bob. Savannah, my pleasure. It's really good to be here. And our feature guest for today is Scott Kozlov of the ARDC. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the ARDC is the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, for those who don't know, but we are not going to start there. As you know, we start with um, the background of our guests. And so um, I did a little bit of research and I looked into, um, I saw that your education, you went to Eastern Illinois University and Valparaiso University School of Law. So are you a Chicago area native? I am. I grew up in the northwest suburbs. Originally from Glenview, Illinois, okay. and uh, currently from Arlington Heights. Yeah, so you like Chicago. You know it's a place you wanted to be. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, did you always know you wanted to go to law school? or? Yeah, my family was really a family of professionals, and uh, most of them are doctors. Most of okay. them are in the medical field, but uh-huh. uh, I was the black sheep of the family and <laughs> went the other direction. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know too many black sheep who are lawyers, but okay. <laughs> um, so what was your first job out of law school? Actually, I had a really difficult time really? finding a job. The market was very tight coming out of school, and uh, I had been clerking part-time for several different law firms. Okay. Um, I ended up doing contract work for each of those law firms until I found a full-time job. Okay. So I did part-time work for three different firms, one doing dissolution of marriage work, another work, another one doing criminal work, and a final one doing some, you know, transactional type matters. Wow! So just juggling like every area of law, pretty much like running around Chicago doing it was crazy contract law work. So then you did you finally settle into one of those positions? Uh, no, I, I I had been offered you know the possibility mm-hmm. of you know opening my own firm and okay. working in conjunction with sure. those firms, but I chose not to do that. You know, with the law school loans and you know, the difficult finances coming out of school, it was preferable to find a full time job with benefits. Right. Yeah. So uh, the next position I held was as an investigator because I could not find okay. that Chicago area law firm job, I went to work for the state as an investigator. Um, I did that with the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services for a couple years. Okay. Um, And my um, juvenile background then led me to um, a court coordinator position, uh, which was basically a law clerk type position for a juvenile court Okay. I was going to ask, I saw a court coordinator on your um, resume and I sort of wasn't sure what a court coordinator does, but just law clerking in the juvenile division. Yeah. I originally got hired as a law clerk to work for a judge and the position morphed into an administrative type position because there really wasn't much legal work to be done Uh at that level. And so... I didn't stay there too long because of that. Yeah. Um, but the juvenile court experience helped me, you know, translate um, that work into another position. Uh, I actually moved uh, to a firm in Arlington Heights for a couple okay. years and uh, did some estate planning probate type work, um, some minor litigation, and a uh, little bit of transactional work there too. Um, 
from there, I decided that I liked the idea of working in government. Okay. And I went back to Got a taste for it. work <laughs> uh, with the county. Um, I joined the public guardian's office, Cook County Public Guardian's okay. office, and worked for Patrick Murphy for four years, um, which was a great experience on my feet, learning to argue mm-hmm. cases on a regular basis. Uh, from there... I had made several contacts while in court, sure. and uh, the judges were very helpful in you know, giving me recommendations. You work hard, you stand in front mm-hmm. of judges every day, they realize you know, the merits of your work and make recommendations for you, and I, that's what got me into the attorney registration discipline. Okay, commission. yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, you know, attorney registration and disciplinary commission, and you are specifically in the... Um, unauthorized practice of law division. And so from what I gather, that's basically you are investigating other lawyers and what sort of unauthorized practices they might be doing. And so I didn't know if that was something that you sort of get roped into, if that's something you like wanted to be doing. Um, yeah. Talk a little more about the past. Sure. That. So um, when I joined the agency, the Attorney Registration Disciplinary Commission had no authority to handle UPL matters uh, uh, to some extent. Uh, the, the agency was handling matters against attorneys that uh, practiced after, say, being suspended or disbarred mm-hmm. or um, attorneys that had been removed from the role for failure to register or failure to right. complete their continuing legal education. You know, those types of UPL matters the the agency was dealing with. Um, the agency did not have authority to investigate or prosecute non-attorneys okay. for engaging in the unauthorized practice of law. I helped write a Supreme Court rule mm-hmm. uh, that was adopted by the Supreme Court in okay. 2011. And ever since 2011, I've been the UPL counsel for yeah. the ARDC. <laughs> this was kind of a... Sort of gave yourself a role by making the Supreme yeah. Court rule, and then you get the job of doing all the investigating right. for it. It was development yeah. of a niche, and uh, I'm super pleased that I was able to do that, and yeah. I love what I do. Yeah. Is there like a reason that they didn't have this authority before? Was it not as much of a problem before finding people who weren't lawyers um, practicing law? Or what is really the definition of someone doing the unauthorized practice of law? Yeah, so... Um, the area of unauthorized practice of law, in particular claims against non-attorneys or disbarred attorneys, was traditionally handled either by the criminal prosecutors, the mm-hmm. county attorneys, or uh, the attorney general's office. Well, the attorney general's office has very limited resources and much bigger fish to fry, sure. and um, that's not something that has traditionally been their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, there were actions brought by the bar associations historically uh, the Chicago Bar Association, the Illinois State Bar Association, on behalf of the people uh-huh. to stop that kind of practice. Um, but for the most part, attorneys paying dues to voluntary bar associations don't want their dues to go towards legal actions, right. to the hiring of attorneys to prosecute these kinds of cases. So it left a void, and uh, there was a big area that um, perpetrators were you know, defrauding people and mm-hmm getting away with, you know, claims that uh, they, they shouldn't have been making on behalf of others and uh, people were being, you know, cheated out of their money. And so um, the court saw a need for the ARDC to step in, and that's how okay. we got this rule passed. Is this something that has been more of a problem with uh, 
like internet and the proliferation of information that can be available there to just anybody? Because I know sort of historically, the reason there was maybe less unauthorized practice of law by non-lawyers is because they just didn't have the legal information, but now it's sort of all out there. So does that make it more of a problem for you? Well, I mean, I certainly think there's been a proliferation of available information through the internet and elsewhere Mm -hmm. um, that allows non-attorneys to try and fudge their way through legal matters on behalf of other people. That That's certainly true. I think the problem has always existed. It's just um, now it's come to light it, you know, with social media and you know, people having a, a venue uh, to air their grievances sure. that we're more aware of okay. things. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I also saw that there has been sort of an uptick in cross-border issues. And so for those that don't know, um, lawyers basically get licensed in only one state. And so now we have a lot of state-to-state transactions and interactions. And so does, does that create a new problem for lawyers? There has certainly been an increase in portability of information. Somebody can uh, load information into a laptop and uh, work from their laptop in Florida when handling an Illinois legal matter. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, attorneys are generally limited to one law license because there are many attorneys that have multiple state licenses Mm -hmm. and there are attorneys that travel between states, you know, lawfully with authority to practice. But um, cross-border practice has become more of an issue. Uh, The more portable the information is, the more likely it is people are going to be crossing borders Mm -hmm. while they practice and the extent to which they can handle matters in each state has become a bigger question. Okay. So what's been like the most interesting case that you've come across doing this kind of work? Wow, uh, that's a difficult (laughs) question. I have to think about that for a second. Uh, I've had the pure um, fraudsters that, you know, decide they're going to hold themselves out as a lawyer. And, you know, that kind of case certainly could and should be prosecuted by the criminal prosecutors. You know, it fits squarely within the false personation statute somebody you know, hanging up a sign that says they're an attorney or mm-hmm. you know, um, setting up a website as a law firm and they're not authorized to practice law in any jurisdiction. Um, once they take funds after they've held themselves out as a lawyer, they could be criminally prosecuted. It's a felony under the false personation statute. But um, I had one of those where the state's attorney had not been prosecuting an individual who had set up a couple different law offices and handled legal matters for at least a dozen different people. Wow, and just and no no law degree, no No law degree, admitted. no training. And this person actually claimed to have a law degree when confronted, you know, and produced documents um, showing that he had received admission from the Supreme Court clerk, uh, but the documents were false and the wow. person had just <laughs> scammed people out of money. And that was a pretty interesting case. Uh, the individual ended up going to jail for 60 days on a criminal contempt petition. Um, And uh, that situation has been an ongoing battle with that person despite that incarceration period. So that's been an interesting one. Because I would guess that like the majority of your cases are more things like didn't pay the correct fees or just... uh... So we do receive those cases. Um, There are attorneys that just... uh, fail to pay the registration fee and have their name removed from the role. That's um, not really what I do for the most okay. part. I, mean, I can handle those, and occasionally I have handled those. Uh, but any attorney on our staff, mm-hmm. um, 
would be capable of handling that type of case. Okay. Uh, it would be it would be handled as a pure disciplinary matter. So somebody who's licensed as an attorney admitted and just fails to pay their dues, mm-hmm. um, that would be a disciplinary violation under Rule 5.5 of the Rules of Professional okay. Conduct. So then that person could be disciplined by the Illinois Supreme Court mm-hmm. for practicing without authorization. But that wouldn't be a criminal contempt action that we would file in court. Okay. I saw that in 2016 there were 113 investigations. So what's the like breakdown of the types of... Uh, charges or investigations that are happening there. Sure, and there are many. It's hard for me to categorize all of them, but um, they range from paralegal doing freelance work, setting up their own shop, assisting people directly without the supervision of an attorney, um, to the uh, law student who's done a little work on behalf of his relatives before he's actually sworn in, or... Um, the real estate broker who's taken the job a little bit too far and starts negotiating attorney's modification clauses mm-hmm. on real estate transactions, um, or the accountant that takes the um, handling of a client's corporate matter, matter a little bit too far and starts advising the client on you know, things like estate planning or you know, what type of legal entity would be best for the client when they register the, the client's entity with the Secretary of State's office. Um, There are all sorts of different variations. Um, I would say the most common things that we've seen are really the um, foreclosure defense uh, people who offer to do loan modifications and take money up front, but then are also doing um, some foreclosure avoidance things. Maybe the case is filed in court and you know, the person is trying to advise the client despite the fact that there's pending litigation. Okay. Or uh, the other big one is, um, I don't know if you've heard the term notario, but um, immigration assistance uh, oh, sure. is provided to people who are not citizens of the country when they're looking for permanent residency um, by a number of different people. Well, in South America, they have... A, a category of legal help known as a notario. Well, in Illinois and most of the United States, we have something called a a notary public. Right. So a notary public will get a stamp to be able to swear to a signature on a document Mm -hmm. on behalf of people, and then they'll hold themselves out as a notario able to do uh, immigration work Mm -hmm. and advise on Mm -hmm. the legalities of immigration petitions. And so... Uh, immigrants don't know the difference and they fall for that scam and they pay these people thousands of dollars to do immigration documents for them. And, you know, federal law has limitations on the amount of work that somebody can do on behalf of somebody else. Uh, We also have state regulations that deal with that. The Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Practices Act deals with that. So um, those would be the biggest categories of unauthorized practice of law offenders that I see. And so all of these issues seem pretty, like, person-to-person, client-based. So how does your office get wind of these issues? That comes to us a a bunch of different ways as well. So uh, we'll get reports from opposing counsel who see a document, look at the counsel's name on the document, and check the ARDC website and determine that the person who's handling the other side of the matter is not licensed to practice. Um, We'll get similar reports from judges Um, where they suspect that somebody's not licensed and the person has appeared in front of them on behalf of somebody else. Um, 
We'll also get reports from individuals that um, believe that they've hired an attorney and they're complaining about their attorney's conduct. But when the report comes to us and we look up the name, there's no such person yeah. on our role of licensed attorneys. So then we know that it's a non-attorney mm -hmm. case. Um, it, there are many different ways that it, those matters come to us, but uh, those are a few. Sometimes it's you know, sua sponte, our docketing of files because we know that something is happening. Um, right. We've noticed it during the course of another investigation or okay. we've seen something in the public media as to something going on. Mm -hmm. We'll docket a file for that as well. Sure. So what's the investigation process like once you um, get noticed that something's going on? Well, uh, typically speaking, and I don't want to speak definitively because the sure. investigative process varies by case, <laughs> but um, typically speaking, um, when we get a report in, we'll send a letter out to the a respondent mm -hmm. uh, asking for a response to the allegations within two weeks. We'll say something like, we've received this report. Uh, the report alleges that you've engaged in the unauthorized practice of law. We're not making any predeterminations, but you know, respond to the allegations. Uh, that would be the, the standard practice. And then if we don't receive a, a response within the two weeks, we'll send a second letter saying, you've um, received a letter from us asking for a response. You haven't responded. Uh, if you don't respond to this letter within a week, to the second letter within a week, that will either subpoena you to come in and testify with a court reporter present, or we may just file the case if we mm -hmm. have sufficient evidence to uh, bring a charge against you, we'll just file it, uh, rather than giving you an opportunity to respond. So there are a number of different uh, ways that the matter could proceed after that. Um, if we believe it would be helpful, we can issue a subpoena, we have subpoena power, and we can compel that person to appear in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, if it's necessary, we can also subpoena documents, um, whether it be insurance records, bank records, um, title company records, you know, whatever exists uh, to prove the allegations, we can also proceed in that manner. Okay. Um, and so I know that you do some other things outside of the ARDC as well. I know that you teach some classes. You might actually be my uh, professional responsibility professor next semester at Loyola. Interesting. Um, depending on how my schedule works out. So how'd you get into that? Well, um, it was kind of a, a natural tangent to what I do. Mm -hmm. I teach ethics, professional responsibility for Loyola. Um, I, I was looking to branch out a little bit beyond, you know, what I do on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did teach for a short time at John Marshall Law right. School. Um, uh, the transition to Loyola happened because um, our deputy administrator, Jim Grogan, who um, has taught at Loyola for years, uh, was stepping back a little bit from okay. teaching his professional responsibility classes, and that's how I ended up at Loyola. Is this something that um, the school sort of would prefer people from the ARDC or ethics to teach, or is it something that you more knew that you wanted to get into teaching courses? Well, I assume that the schools, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I assume that the schools have an interest in having somebody from the agency teach, although... You know, very honestly, I don't know that that's a necessity. There mm -hmm. are lots of people with um, background in ethics, um, whether that be, you know, by practice or by study or by, you know, um, publishing texts on ethics, you know, whatever the background is. There's a lot of different ways you could become an expert in ethics. But um, I, I think it's a natural uh, connection between people at the ARDC mm -hmm. and 
you know, teaching ethics, you give the practical side of it. Sure. Bob, while you've got the ARDC council here, do you have any questions you want to throw his way? Scott, I'm curious. Um, are there complaints having to do with some of the companies that offer legal documents to consumers, offer do-it-yourself estate plans or corporate documents? Absolutely. Um, th those types of grievances or allegations come to the ARDC's attention fairly frequently. Um, it's not necessarily the unauthorized practice of law to have a document company that you know provides you know documentation and fill in the blank forms for people uh, to complete. Um, those forms are generally prepared by the attorneys that worked for those companies in the preparation process. Um, but you know, do those companies cross the line occasionally? Sure. Um, and depending on the size of the company and the nature of work performed by the company. Uh, yes, they can engage in the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, for instance, um, giving legal advice on how the form is to be used, and you're calling a hotline, talking to the company, and speaking to a non-attorney over that hotline. Yeah, that could be the unauthorized practice of law. And you know, there are varying degrees of violations, and we don't prosecute every one. You know, at the ARDC, we're looking for cases with a victim or cases with a pattern of practice. But yeah, those types of allegations do come to our attention. And, and do you also get similar allegations, for instance, if a financial institution that is a money manager is, is trying to help one of their clients with estate planning documents? Or does that happen? I would say I've received a few grievances of that nature, but I wouldn't say that that was a high concentration of filings. I mean, certainly you know, there are problems with uh, entities using non-attorneys to draft, say, deeds on behalf of people attempting to transfer property because the deed is a legal document. And there's case law that says that you know, only attorneys can draft deeds on behalf of others. So um, that type of thing might get prosecuted, but usually it's a matter of correcting the practice so that the public is protected. So if we can get the entity to realize that they've got to change their practices and not you know, be providing legal services or legal advice, then you know, that's sufficient for our purposes. It doesn't mean that the person or entity didn't engage in the unauthorized practice of law. And there are remedies outside of the ARDC. You know, um, attorneys and bar associations can always bring claims uh, under the Attorney Act, which is a civil claim. Um, against others for engaging in the unauthorized practice of law. There's always the Attorney General's office and occasionally the state's attorneys get involved. But as far as the ARDC is concerned, um, if we can stop the practice, then we generally don't pursue allegations. So, so the idea being really to protect the public more than anything? Yes, absolutely. How many of your like investigations per year end up in like uh, court action? That's difficult to say, too. I, our, I know our annual report maintains those statistics, so if you really want exact numbers, you could go to our annual report on the ARDC website, which is iardc.org. Um, but I would say anywhere from you know, 5 to 15 okay. you know, per year, I, I would think that would be pretty accurate. Okay. And that's just on the unauthorized practice of law? Yes, that's right. That would be court actions for criminal contempt or violation of the Attorney mm -hmm. Act. Um, brought by the ARDC. Okay. Um, I'm going to change subjects now slightly. There's really no 
a clean segue for this, but I come across some interesting information that said that you were a nationally ranked competitive figure skater, and I just want to hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't tell her. <laughs> she found that on her own. Yes, I was. Uh, in a different lifetime, <laughs> I was uh, fifth at the uh, national championships in the novice division, so... Um, if you want to go to the Olympics, you're competing at a senior level. Uh -huh. um, the third highest level in figure skating is the novice level. So it goes senior, junior, novice. Yeah. And at the novice level, I was fifth. Went to a couple national championships as a figure skater. Um, trained all over the country. And wow. it was my life before <laughs> college. Okay, so before college. I was going to ask if there was any, like... Um what the Venn diagram of like figure skating and legal practice looks like. Is there any overlap <laughs> in between there? I can't see that there's any, any skills connection. That I mean, skating there. does teach you to be diligent. I mean, I, honestly, if I had not skated, I think I probably would have done a little better in my studies and <laughs> you know, my resume would be a little better, but you know, it's difficult to do both. There are people that do it. Um, we have a current national champion, Nathan Chen, who's um, studying at Yale. Uh, but that's an anomaly. Most figure skaters aren't studying at Yale and also competing okay. on a national level. Yeah, um, that pretty much covers everything I had planned for today. Um, if you have anything else you want to talk about, the ARDC or anything else. Yeah, I can't really think of anything else to cover. <laughs> anything else you want to plug? So um, thank you again for coming in. Uh, I found that very enlightening and interesting, hearing about all the um, different ways non-lawyers and lawyers can mess up their legal <laughs> practice. Um, thank you for coming in today. Sure. One, one last thing before sure. I go. I think if anyone has questions on ARDC matters, they can certainly call our ethics inquiry hotline, um, which is 1-800-565-2600, or you can look us up on the website. Um, we walk attorneys through ethical dilemmas all the time. And, you know, we're not able to give specific advisory opinions and tell them do X, Y, and Z, but we are able to sure. point them in the right direction. So if anyone so has questions. Give a call before you get investigated. Right. Make sure you get all your bases covered. Yeah. And, and Scott, I thank you as well for your time and for coming over to do this. It's much appreciated. Sure. Anytime. Glad to do it. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you. You betcha. to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts, 
under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.